People have absolutely no confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us, too, as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yost, and we're your hosts. If the police commissioner's own daughter has been consumed uh, by the streets in this way, um, you know, I think that really personalized it for people. Welcome back to Truth and Reconciliation. Today we recount the second part of our series, The Serial Killer Who Wasn't and Then Was. It's a story not just about a crime, but how sometimes the perception of it matters more in Baltimore than the people who suffer from it. All that coming up on Truth and Reconciliation. At the end of our last podcast, Stephen had nearly been fired after a story he wrote about an alleged serial killer prompted a critical article about his reporting. The article, which appeared in the now defunct city paper, didn't have a byline, but it accused Stephen of conjuring a murderer preying upon women in northwest Baltimore. Stephen's story recounted a protest in 2006 when residents gathered to call attention to Lower Park Heights to crimes they said were both violent and predatory. But the mainstream media was skeptical, and Stephen's article, which simply quoted the people who attended, became a flashpoint. It was really strange because I'd I'd written so many stories for the Examiner. As I said before, we write like, you know, one a day. And this 350-word article had become like this sort of uh, banner for how the Examiner was a reckless newspaper and that I was a reckless reporter. And the mileage that came from this small in, in one sense, a significant story became something that kind of followed me around for quite some time at the Examiner, became someone of, of an embodiment of how the established media in Baltimore was going to take pot shots at us whenever they could. And, and so it was kind of strange how such a small story could be so significant. After the article was published, the head of Clarity Media, which owned the Baltimore Examiner, wanted to fire Stephen. But Frank Keegan, the editor of the paper, wouldn't do it. In the meantime, Stephen began to think about media, about its role in qualifying and quantifying crime, and how the reality it depicts is often far removed from the reality he had witnessed firsthand. You know, to me, it it was really, I don't want to put it in some sort of cultural theory, you know, premise, but it was like I had seen the construction of this narrative that had engulfed an entire community in nothing but either crime-ridden or crime-creation. And that narrative was so uh, embedded in the psyche of the city and in the political power structure of the city, including in the narrative that then Mayor Martin O'Malley was using to kind of prepare himself to be president of the United States. 
that you know it was impenetrable and it and it would be defended no matter what that there was a conflict between what he had experienced and the perception of the industry in which he worked that the facile manner in which the pain of the community could be turned into rhetorical fodder for politicians and pundits all seemed surreal but still he was able to keep his job and he continued to report So, I mean, really, at that point, you know, I didn't really have any other option but to just keep reporting. And, you know, as I delved deeper into the criminal justice, uh, what I would call industrial complex in the city, you know, it just became more and more apparent to me that, that what was going on in 2006 was a deeper conflict about, you know, how uh, communities are not only policed, but how their perception of those communities are policed. And so, you know, when I wrote a story about a seven-year-old who got arrested, his name was Gerard Mungo. Uh, he was riding a little dirt bike and they arrested him. And, you know, the way that story was received, mm-hmm. the way that people would call me and, you know, say horrible things about this child. Uh, and horrible it, things about you. They yeah, accused well, you of being a race traitor. Oh, all sorts of stuff. Uh, you know, I would get hate mail and, and all sorts of things. It just... I, I realized that, you know, this narrative that had been constructed about Baltimore City was really a bunch of BS. And it really, you know, was a, a way to further the injustice upon people in neighborhoods like Park Heights. But it wasn't until two years later, when he received a call early one morning, that he realized just how much the media had been wrong. So I was, you know, it was like six o'clock in the morning. I got a call from uh, a source I had in homicide. His name is Kelvin Sewell. He was a homicide detective. And he said, Stephen, you're not going to believe this, but I'm looking at the body of Nicole Sesker. So, you know, I immediately, like, jumped up and uh, got on the phone and called my editor and said, I got to write a story, like, now. Nicole Sesker was the stepdaughter of former police commissioner Leonard Ham. Sesker struggled with addiction, and her life on the streets of northwest Baltimore had made headlines in the New York Times. Her murder was big news, and it wasn't the end of the story. So, you know, I wrote this story about Nicole Sesker, and, um, you know, obviously it got picked up and, and it became a big sort of story in the town because, you know, Police Commissioner Ham's da- stepdaughter dying, being strangled, was, was pretty big news. I mean, it turns out that she was strangled, you know, that she was probably sexually assaulted. Working with Stephen on the investigation was his reporting partner, Luke Broadwater, who's now a journalist with the Baltimore Sun. If the police commissioner's own daughter has been consumed uh, by the streets in this way. Um, you know, I think that really personalized it for people. And, you know, her case was was uh, very tragic. I remember, I, I believe the New York Times even mm-hmm. featured her in a, um, I think it was a front-page story at the By time. former editor Gary Gately at the Baltimore Examiner. That's right, a really yeah. well-done piece. Excellent piece. And um, we... Uh, you know, I, I, she had had a hard life. She had a really hard mm-hmm. life and had had a lot of ups and downs. And uh, when she finally turned up dead, I think it, 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 caught, it, it drew a lot of attention to the struggles of these women. And as a result, um, 
you know, we started looking into other cases, and I got another tip from Homicide that she wasn't the only person who had been strangled, the only woman who had been strangled in the past uh, four or five months, that there had actually been three other women who had been strangled uh, in Baltimore in, I think, a span of like three or four months. So it was pretty scary. The four cases involved women who were in similar predicaments as Nicole, all drug addicted and all working the streets to support their habit. And what made the cases even more alarming, all the women were strangled in a span of four months. Amanda Bishop, Elizabeth Garrett, Yolanda Brown, and Nicole Sesker. So, you know, we immediately just started looking at all this because it was really a rash of violence, even for Baltimore, that was unusual. I mean, most of the victims, unfortunately, in Baltimore are male, and most of them are shot. Mm -hmm. But these were crimes of women who were being strangled, you know, discarded uh, throughout, you know, northwest Baltimore and south Baltimore. And and it was really, really disturbing because in some sense there was a pattern, right? Right. Now, we didn't, the police were not saying that the cases were related and there was no evidence that it was a serial killer. But those types of crimes that are very, you know, kind of different from the normal pattern of violence happening in such close proximity raised a lot of concerns. So, yeah, we started cross-checking the names, and um, right away, a, a trend emerged. I think we found um, five, uh, five of the missing women had all had uh, um, been arrested in the past on charges of prostitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we reported this, um, uh, obviously, with other context and other reporting. And I remember calling up the police department about it. And um, they immediately saw what we were seeing. They said what we were seeing was right. And uh, they launched a task force to begin investigating um, the, uh, the deaths of these women. It was really kind of scary because there were many cases that occurred right in the same area where the protest had been and where people had said these killings were occurring, especially the case of Yolanda Brown, who was found in Lincoln Park, really, I mean, literally like half a mile from the protest. And, you know, speaking, we started talking to women, you know, who were out, uh, who were in the same kind of situation that Nicole Sesker was, you know, drug addicted, just trying to hustle to kind of survive. And, you know, there were rumors about, you know, people or a single person who was doing this. There were rumors about a man who had been picking up women and doing this. But, you know, we didn't really have any evidence. But as we went back and we found these other cases, you know, going back to 2003, 2004, there were other women who had been strangled and they were all unsolved. You know, of, of the 29 cases we reviewed, only nine had been solved. So there were like a, a huge amount of unsolved strangulation of women, uh, which is really kind of surprising because you leave a lot of evidence. So they produced a series called The Killing Fields, an in-depth investigation of 29 murders, 20 of which remain unsolved. And it was during that investigation that Stephen had close-up encounters with women, desperate, addicted, and vulnerable. I mean, I spent a lot of time in the neighborhoods where men come to pick up women for sex in the city. And it is a horrible and brutal trade, if that's what you want to call it. You know, these most of these women had been sexually abused when they were young and had mm-hmm. since developed addictions. And because of their addictions, had been pretty much run out of regular, 
you know, jobs and things. And so the only thing they had was to sit out on the street. And, you know, people don't understand, but down on Wilkins Avenue at that time, there were women who were doing tricks for $20, you know, $20 just to get enough heroin to keep them from getting sick. And it was uh, one of the, the most horrible things I've ever experienced because no one cared about these women. I mean, not no one. There were advocates, but our, our I think even the police didn't really see it right. as a big deal. And who wants to protect them? And, you know, there's, I, I, that's when I kind of realized a perverse relationship of prostitution, that even though the men who were driving down to Wilkins Avenue were doctors and lawyers mm-hmm. and people in, you know, nice cars and pickup trucks and everything, uh, the hatred for the women who were suffering was profound. And I, I remember one time I just went up to a woman. Uh, she was right on Wilkins Avenue, and she was standing there. And I said, hi, my name is Stephen Jans. I'm a reporter. Um, and she goes, hi. And I go, how are you today? You know, because I'd always try to talk. And she just started crying. And it was during that investigation, Stephen got a call from a source. So uh, one day I was sitting in the newsroom and, you know, we had published a series of articles and my source in Vice, who, who worked Vice, called me and said, uh, they just made an arrest. They, they made an arrest of a guy who killed some of the women you talked about or you wrote about. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, they just, they just arrested this guy over in Gwen Oaks. Um, they matched his DNA to three, three of the murders and one near murder in the past. And I was just like, wow, this is, uh, I was stunned. I was just stunned. The man police arrested was William Vincent Brown, a father of two, a bus driver, and an occasional drug dealer. He was charged with the deaths of two women in 2003 and the rape and attempted murder of another woman in 2004. It was a spree of violence in just 10 months, and his area of operation Northwest Baltimore, the same general area of the protest. Yeah, it was a very big deal. I remember we, uh, uh, we 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 swung into action. I ran out to the neighborhood. I remember interviewing uh, his neighbors, interviewing people uh, who knew uh, William Brown, who was this guy. Um, you know, had he really killed multiple women? Had he attacked multiple women? Did did you have any sign of that? And, um, you know, people were surprised. People were very surprised. Mm-hmm. They did not know that their uh, neighbor, uh, this guy who seemed like an ordinary guy, was uh, doing this stuff in the middle of the night. But there was something about the arrest that bothered Stephen. The other cases remaining unsolved. It was just kind of strange because, so you have this guy, William Vincent Brown, right? And they match his DNA to three of the victims going back to 2003, 2004. So in the span of 10 months, he kills two women and he nearly kills another, rapes her and leaves her for dead. Over in Lincoln Park, okay, on the same stretch of road where Yolanda Brown was found, okay? The same MO, two men actually saw... Uh, in the Yolanda Brown case, a man matching his description, taking her body out of the car and dumping it on the side of the road. But police never connected the dots. And when I would go out and talk to women and show them 
his picture, show show them the picture of William Brown that I have from the mugshot. They knew him. I mean, mm. he was constantly out. Uh, several of the women had had violent encounters with him. They said that, you know, he was really friendly, pick him up, take them, you know, to do a trick. And then if they didn't do exactly what he wanted, he would suddenly turn violent. And one or two of them just escaped with their lives. This was their story. But police never charged him with anything in 2008. In fact, I had a woman who literally went on the record saying William Brown assaulted me and tried to strangle me, and they wouldn't charge him. And and I think the whole reason was is because they didn't want to make it seem like in 2006 that they were covering this up. I think that's the only reason. Because think about it uh, logically. This guy kills two women, almost kills another in 10 months, and then just never has another encounter, never commits another act of violence. And then you got Yolanda Brown, the first of the four murders, and then there was a fifth murder, and she's left in the same spot by a guy that looks exactly like him, and there's no connection. I mean, I think that there's a lot of questions there about, like, what were the police doing? Why wouldn't they arrest? Why wouldn't they charge him? I mean, I literally had someone in a newspaper with her name say that he assaulted me, and they just wouldn't do it. And that really pissed me off. And what happened may have been forgotten altogether. But then in 2017, Stephen was contacted by a television producer. So I had done uh, an appearance on Investigation Discovery show about crime. They do these shows about crime where, you you know, you talk about a crime, and it was a crime involving two brothers who had raped and murdered a, a young woman in Baltimore County, I think. And so I'd stayed in touch with the people who had produced the show because we'd always talked about maybe doing another show. And he called me, or I think he emailed me and said, you know, I, I need a uh, – we're doing this show called Dead of Night, a series about, you know – killings that happen at night and uh, did I have any stories and I said yeah I've got this story about you know a serial killer named William Vincent Brown and he's like okay well write something up and send it to me and I did when the sun goes down in Baltimore Maryland the fractured city's worst residents begin to emerge from the shadows in the dead of night his intention was to get away with it by eliminating those victims. But a surprise awaits the killer. The show, Dead of Night, recounted the story of the arrest of William Brown and included the terrifying encounter with one of his victims, Wendy Davis. He told me, he said, pull your pants down. Daddy told me to lay down. And at this time, to be honest with you, I'm saying it to myself. I said, cooperate. Just cooperate because the worst thing happened is that he's just, he's going to rape you. So what was amazing to me was there was a woman who survived his attack. Uh, she he bit off her ear and um, had left her on the side of the road for dead. But she came forward after our stories and testified against him. And she was contacted by the producers. We actually got in touch with her. And she went on camera and told her story. And 
it was just mind-blowing. I've, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen a person with so much courage. Did she testify against William Brown in the courtroom? Yes. Well, that was what was recounted in the episode, which is what I witnessed. Because basically, you know, he had not pled guilty, and he was fighting the charges. And she showed up in court one day, and there's this moment that they re- re- actually recreate in the series where she looks at him and points at him and says, I'm not afraid of you anymore. Please state your name for the court. Wendy Davis. I feel like I am the voice. Like, this is my purpose. I have to speak for all of them, not just me. It wasn't just about me. It was about all of us. And that gave me strength. And her testimony, after her testimony, and after what she said about him, he pled guilty because everyone was just kind of looking at him in the courtroom like, look, you're done, dude. It's over for you. Even with the attention the case garnered, four of the five cases remain unsolved. Still, the media's ability to paint a simplified and often damaging picture of crime and race in Baltimore remains. And to me, the story of what happened to these women and how these cases were not prosecuted is another example of how the city covers something up to continue this kind of BS narrative uh, with, I don't know what thought, that somehow by not reconciling with this, that somehow it's better than just dealing with it and being honest and truthful. And we all suffer from it, and we're going to continue to unless we change. Thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Telegram, Stephen Janis, Sean Yost, and Sienna Greaves for A Spectrum Production. It's also engineered by Sienna Greaves. If you like the music at the beginning and end of the podcast, you can find it on Spotify under the artist Mr. Muse. Also, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or leave us a review if you enjoy the show. I'm Stephen Janis. And I'm Taya Graham. Thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. <laughs>